Chapter 2, Parts 1 and 2 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 1, by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 2. The Expansion of Greece. Part 1. Causes and Character of Greek Colonization. The expansion of the Greeks beyond Greece proper and the coasts of the Aegean the plantation of Greek colonies on the shores of Thrace and the Black Sea, in Italy and Sicily, even in Spain and Gaul, began it is uncertain when, and was completed in the sixth century. But it must not be regarded as a single or isolated phenomenon. It was the continuation of the earlier expansion over the Aegean islands and the coast of Asia Minor, the details of which were forgotten by the Greeks themselves, and are consequently unknown to us. The cause of Greek colonization is not to be found in mere trade interests. These indeed were in most cases a motive, and in some of the settlements on the Black Sea they were perhaps a leading motive. But the great difference between Greek and Phoenician colonization is that, while the Phoenicians aimed solely at promoting their commerce, and only a few of their settlements, notably Carthage, became more than mere trading stations or factories, Greek colonization satisfied other needs than desire of commercial profit. It was the expression of the adventurous spirit which has been poetically reflected in the legends of the sailing of the Argo and the homecoming of Odysseus, the same spirit not to be expressed in any commercial formula which prompted English colonization. Trade, of course, sometimes paved the way. Colonists followed in the paths of trade, and the merchants of Miletus, who adventured themselves in the dangerous waters of the Euxine, observe natural harbours and inviting sites for cities, and when they returned home organised parties of settlers. The adventurous, the discontented and the needy were always to be found, but in the case of the early colonies at least it was not overpopulation of the land so much as the nature of the land system that drove men to emigrate. In various ways, under the family system, which was ill-suited to independent and adventurous spirits, it would come about that individual members were excluded from a share in the commonest state and separated from their kin. Such lacklands were ripe for colonial enterprise. Again, the political circumstances of most Greek states in the 8th and 7th centuries favoured emigration. We have seen that at this time the aristocratic form of government generally prevailed. Sometimes a king was formally at the head, but he was really no more than the first of peers. A body of nobles were the true masters. Sometimes there was an aristocracy within an aristocracy, or a large clan like the Bacchiads at Corinth held the power. 
In all cases, the distinction between the members of the ruling class and the mass of free citizens was widened and deepened. It was the tendency of the rulers to govern in their own interest and oppress the multitude, and they cared little to disguise their contempt for the mass of the people. At Mytilene things went so far that the Penthilids, who had secured the chief power, went about in the streets armed with clubs, and knocked down citizens whom they disliked. Under these conditions there were strong inducements for men to leave their native city, where they were of little account and had to endure the slights, if nothing worse, of their rulers, and to join in the foundation of a new polis where they might themselves rule. The same inducement drew nobles who did not belong to the inner oligarchical circle. In fact, political discontent was an immediate cause of Greek colonization, and conversely it may be said that colonization was a palladium of aristocracy. If this outlet had not existed, or if it had not suited the Hellenic temper, the aristocracies might not have lasted so long, and they wisely discerned that it was their own interest to encourage colonization. But while we recognize the operation of general causes, we must not ignore special causes. We must, for instance, take into account the fact that Miletus and the South Ionian cities were unable to expand in Caria, as the North Ionian cities expanded in Lydia, because the Carians were too strong for them, and Lycia presented the same kind of barrier to Rhodes. Otherwise, perhaps neither Rhodes nor Miletus would have sent settlers to distant lands. Wherever the Greek went, he retained his customs and language, and made a Greek polis. It was as if a bit of Greece were set down on the remote shores of the Euxine, or in the far west on the wild coasts of Gaul or Iberia. The colony was a private enterprise, but the bond of kinship with the mother city was carefully fostered, and though political discontent might have been the cause which drove the founders forth, yet that solemn departure for a distant land where a new city-state protected by the same gods was to spring up, always sealed a reconciliation. The emigrants took fire from the public hearth of their city to light the fire on that of their new home. Intercourse between colonies and the mother country was specially kept up at the great religious festivals of the year, and various marks of filial respect were shown by the daughter to the mother when, as frequently befell, the colony determined herself in turn to throw off a new shoot, it was the recognized custom that she should seek the Isist, or leader of the colonists, from the mother city. Thus the Megarian colony Byzantium, when it founded its own colony Mesembria, must have sought an Isist from Megara. The political importance of colonization was sanctified by religion, and it was a necessary formality, whenever a settlement was to be made, to ask the approbation of the Delphic god. The most ancient oracular god of Greece was Zeus of Dodona. The Selli, his priests and interpreters, are mentioned in the Iliad, 
and in the Odyssey Dodona appears as a place to which a king of the West might go to ask the will of Zeus from the lofty oak, wherein the god was conceived to dwell. But the oak shrine in the highlands of Epirus was too remote to become the chief oracle of Greece, and the central position of Delphi enabled the astute priests of the Pythian Apollo to exalt the authority of their god as a true prophet to the supreme place in the Greek world. Footnote, the Delphic oracle is also mentioned in the Odyssey in the passage of the Legend of Oedipus, book 19, line 296, end of footnote. There were other oracular deities who foretold the future. There was, not far off, Trophonius at Boeotian Lebedea, there was Amphiarius in the land of the Greys, not yet Boeotian, but none of these ever became even a rival of the Delphian Apollo, who, by the seventh century at least, had won the position of advisor to Greece. Footnote. The influence of the oracle is another question. End of footnote. It is worthy of notice that colonization tended to promote a feeling of unity among the Greek peoples, and it did so in two ways. By the wide diffusion of their race on the fringe of barbarous lands it brought home to them more fully the contrast between Greek and barbarian, and, by consequence, the community of the Greeks. The Greek dwellers in Asia Minor, neighbours of not-Greek peoples, were naturally impressed with their own unity in a way which was strange to dwellers in Boeotia or Attica, who were surrounded on all sides by Greeks, and were therefore alive chiefly to local differences. With the diffusion of their sons over various parts of the world, the European Greeks acquired a stronger sense of unity. In the second place, colonization led to the association of Greeks of different cities. An Esist who decided to organize a party of colonists could not always find in his own city a sufficient number of men willing to take part in the enterprise. He therefore enlisted comrades from other cities, and thus many colonies were joint undertakings and contained a mixture of citizens of various nationality. This feature was not indeed confined to the later epoch of colonization, it is one of the few facts about the earlier settlements on the Asiatic coast of which we can be certain. End of chapter 2, part 1 Chapter 2, part 2, Colonies on the Coasts of the Euxine, Propontis, and North Aegean the voyage of the Argonauts in quest of the Golden Fleece commemorates in a delightful legend the memorable day on which Greek sailors for the first time burst into the waters of the Euxine Sea. Accustomed to the island straits and short distances of the Aegean, they fancied that when they had passed the Bosphorus they were embarking on a boundless ocean, and they called it the Main, Pontos. Even when they had circumnavigated its shores, it might still seem boundless, for they knew not where the great rivers, the Ister, the Tanais, the Danapris, might lead. The little preliminary sea, into which the Hellespont widens, to contract again into the narrow passage of the Bosphorus, 
was appropriately named the vestibule of the Pontus, Propontis. Full of creeks and recesses, it is happily described by Euripides as the bayed water key of the boundless sea. The Pontus was a treacherous field for the barks of even experienced mariners, and it was supposed to have received for this reason its name Euxine, or hospitable, in accordance with the habit of the Greeks to seek to propitiate adverse powers by pleasant names. Footnote. But this explanation is by no means certain. End of footnote. It was when the compass of the Euxine was still unknown, and men were beginning shyly to explore its coasts, that the tale of the wanderings of Odysseus took form. He was imagined to have sailed from Troy into the Pontus, and after having been driven about in its waters to have at last reached Ithaca by an overland journey through Thrace and Epirus. In the Odyssey as we have it now, compounded of many different legends and poems, this is disguised. The island of Circe has been removed to the far west, and the scene of the descent to the underworld translated to the Atlantic Ocean. But Circe, the daughter of the sun, and sister of King Aetes, who possessed the Golden Fleece, belongs to the seas of Colchis, and the world of shades beyond the Cimmerians is to be sought near the Cimmerian Bosphorus. The mention of Sicily in some of the later parts of the poem, and the part played by Ithaca, which, with the other islands of the Ionian Sea, lay on the road to the western Mediterranean, reflect the beginning of the expansion of Greece in that direction. But the original wanderings of Odysseus were connected not with the west, but with the exploration of the Euxine. A mist of obscurity hangs about the beginnings of the first Greek cities which arose on the Pontic shores. Here Miletus was the pioneer. Merchants carrying the stuffs which were manufactured from the wool of Milesian sheep may have established trading stations along the southern coast. Flax from Colchis, steel and silver, slaves, were among the chief products which their wool bought. But the work of colonization beyond the gate of the Bosphorus can hardly have fully begun until the gate itself was secured by the enterprise of Megara, which sent out men in the first part of the seventh century to found the towns of Chalcedon and Byzantium. Byzantium could command the trade of the Black Sea, but the great commercial and political importance of her situation was not fully appreciated until a thousand years had passed, when she became the rival and successor of Rome, and took, in honour of her second founder, the name Constantinople. This is the first appearance of the little state of Megara in Greek history, and none of her contemporaries took a step that was destined to lead to greater things than the settlement on the Bosphorus. The story was that Chalcedon was founded first, before the Megarians perceived the striking advantages of the opposite shore, and the Delphic oracle, which they consulted as a matter of course, chid them as blind men. Westward from Byzantium they also founded Celimbria on the north coast of the Propontis, 
Eastward they established Heraclea in Pontus, on the coast of Bithynia. The enterprise of the Megarians stimulated Miletus, and she determined to anticipate others in seizing the best sites on the Pontic shore. At the most northerly point of the southern coast a straight-necked cape forms two natural harbours, an attractive site for settlers, and here the Milesians planted the city Sinope. Footnote. This city claimed to date from the 8th century, to have been swept away in the invasion of the Cimmerians, and to have risen again in the 7th, but it is highly improbable that any of the Pontic cities were older than the towns of the Bosphorus and Propontis. End of footnote. Farther east, halfway to that extreme eastern point of the sea where the Phasis flows out at the foot of Mount Caucasus, arose another Milesian colony, Trapezus. At the Bosphorus the Milesians had been anticipated by Megara, but they partly made up for this by planting Abydus on the Hellespont opposite Sestos, and they also seized a jutting promontory on the south coast of the Propontis, where a narrow neck, as at Sinope, forms two harbours. The town was named Sidzicus, and the peninsula was afterwards transformed into an island. The tunny-fish on the coins of the city shows what was one of the chief articles of her trade. Lampsacus at the northern end of the Hellespont, once a Phoenician factory, was colonised by another Ionian city, Phocea, about the same time, and the winged seahorse on Lampsacene coins speaks of naval enterprise which led afterwards to wealth and prosperity. The foundation of Parion was due to a joint undertaking of Miletus and Erythri, and Cladzomene joined Miletus in planting Cardia at the neck of the Thracian Chersones, in the important position of an advance fort against Thrace. On the southern side of the Hellespont, the lands of the Scamander invited the Greeks of Lesbos, and a number of small Aeolian settlements arose. Greek settlements also sprang up in the more remote parts of the Euxine. Dioscurias and Phasis were founded in the far east, in the fabled land of Colchis. On the Tauric Chersonesus, or peninsula, now the Crimea, Panticopeum was founded over against Phanagoria at the entrance to the Meotic Lake, and Tanais at the mouth of the like-named river. Heraclea, or Chersonesus, on the western side of the peninsula, was destined to preserve the municipal forms of an old Greek city for more than a thousand years. Olbia, at the mouth of the Dnieper, Odessus, Istrus, Masembria, were only some of the Greek settlements which complete the circuit of the Black Sea. This sea and the Propontis were the special domain of the sea-god Achilles, whose fame grew greater by his association as a hero with the legend of Troy. He was worshipped along the coasts as Lord of the Pontus, and in Lucy, the shining island near the Danube's mouth, the lonely island where no man dwelled, he had a temple, and the birds of the sea were said to be its warders. If Miletus and Megara took the most prominent part in extending the borders of the Greek world eastward of the Hellespont, 
the northwestern corner of the Aegean was the special domain of Euboea. The barren islands of Seathus and Peperethus were the bridge from Euboea to the coast of Macedonia, which, between the rivers Axius and Strymon, runs out into a huge three-pronged promontory. Here Chalcis planted so many towns that the whole promontory was named Chalcidice. Some of the chief cities, however, were founded by other states, notably Corinthian Potidaea on the most westerly of the three prongs, which was called Pallini. Scythonia was the central prong, and Acti, ending in Mount Athos, the eastern. Some of the colonies on Pallini were founded by Eretria, and those north of Acti by Andros, which was dependent on Eretria. Hence we may regard this group of cities as Euboean, though we cannot regard it as Chalcidian. On the west side of the Thermaic Bay two Euboean colonies were planted, Pydna and Methoni, on Macedonian soil. End of chapter 2, part 2 Recording by Graham Redmond